And as we're getting settled, would you just welcome our friends joining us online? Let them know we appreciate them too. We are glad they can be with us. I told Brad I'd wave to him in, in North Carolina and Monica and Virginia and my brother in Idaho. And it's just awesome technology that we can have uh, family members and visitors join us online. Well, just a quick reminder to the baptism service this afternoon at four o'clock. It's an awesome day for that. And we're gonna hear three exciting testimonies of how God has worked in people's lives. I get chills when I hear what God has been doing. You won't wanna miss it. It'll be a beautiful garden setting at the Williams home. And uh, there's directions on the insert in the bulletin and be a great time together. Well. In 1992, a Baptist pastor named Gary Chapman published his kind of landmark book about the five love languages. You're probably familiar with it. It was, um, he, he said that the ways in which people experience and communicate love can be kind of grouped into five different categories. And he lists them as... Um, let me get the list here. Words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. And he suggests that each of these languages can be experienced by everybody, but everyone has probably one primary language, one that really stands out, the way in which they most effectively receive and communicate love. And you can kind of identify your love language with the simple questionnaire. We do this as part of the parenting class so that parents learn the love language of their children. But maybe a husband's primary love language is gift giving. And so when he comes home from work, he regularly brings a gift for his wife. But if his wife's love language is not gift giving, she might look at that and say, well, that's kind of frivolous. It's a waste of money. I don't really need that. So she's not receiving the love that he's trying to communicate with her. If meanwhile, her language is maybe words of encouragement or affirmation, she just wants him to say, honey, I'm glad to see you. It's so good to be home. But to him, Words are cheap, you know, buy something. That doesn't mean anything. So they're, they're not on the same page. They're missing each other. And not only does the wife not receive the love from her husband, but she seldom communicates love to him in a language that he understands. And so that's the essence of the love languages. And, and I think that there's a lot to it. I've seen it with my children and with my wife and our family. Um, but loving others, it's, it's so important. And Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so love is to be the defining characteristic of Christians and of the church. He said, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So love is vitally important. But is love nothing more than words of affirmation or quality time or gift receiving or physical touch or acts of service? I mean, those are all good things and I think there's love wrapped up in each one of them but I think there's so much more as well. 
So as we continue in our series in 1 Peter this morning, I titled the message, The Real Language of Love, and we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and there's just two parts to the outline. The first part is the finale, and it comes at the beginning rather than at the end. I didn't write it. That's just the way it is. And then secondly, the forethought, and that's in verses 10 through 12. So I wanna start by reading through the text. It's a short text, and then we'll work our way through it verse by verse. So it begins in verse eight. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we begin with the finale in verses eight and nine. And Peter begins in verse eight with the word finally. Now I kind of chuckle at that because he's barely halfway through his letter. There's still two and a half chapters to go, but he says finally. You know, it's kind of like a preacher that says in closing and then he goes on for 25 more minutes. I don't do that when I say in closing, I close, I hope, most of the time. But he says finally here, and and he uses it to make a very important point. It's not a conclusion, it's a culmination. It's the pinnacle of what he's been saying. It's a climactic point of what he's laid out up to this point. And so he's saying in light of all these things, finally. So in light of all what things? Well, I'm gonna give you a rundown of the book of 1 Peter so far in like one minute. So I'll just do a quick recap. Uh, And I'm gonna start in, in chapter one, verse three. He's saying, I know you believers are suffering. You've been chased from your homes by persecution. But listen up, you have this new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. And then he continues in chapter two, he says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And and then, so he says, so act like it. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, your, the, and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And then he shows us what this good life looks like. He says, submit to every authority instituted among men. Chapter two, verse 13. He says, bear up under the pain of unjust suffering. Chapter two, verse 19. He says, love and submit to each other in marriage. Chapter three, verses one through seven. And now, on top of all of this, and here comes our text, he says, finally, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. That's the pinnacle point. 
live in harmony with one another. It's the culmination of what he's been writing. You see, it's not only important how we interact with the world out there, it's important how we interact with one another in here, within the church, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, because the unbelieving world out there is looking at you in here, and they're watching you. Jesus said, by this, this love, all men will know that you are my disciples. So, Peter writes, all of you, every last one of you, every last one of you, live in harmony with one another. That's his opening statement. That's a command. And I really like how the NIV translation uses the word harmony here. The, the ESV says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. And that's a faithful translation too. And it, it conveys a little different sense of it, unity of mind, but I really like the word harmony. Because the word harmony implies two things, diversity and unity. It brings those two together, both diversity and unity. Now someone might say, but Paul, that's a contradiction, diversity and unity, but it's not at all. Diversity means having a great deal of variety. And unity means being joined together. Common mind, common purpose, common goals. So it's saying be joined together in unity even though you're not all the same. See, unity doesn't mean uniformity. We're not cookie cutter Christians stamped out to look identical to each other. We're all very, very different. And so when Peter penned these words, he was writing to a diverse group of Christians and he said, all of you. And that would have included Christians who were rich and Christians who were poor, Jewish background and Gentiles, slaves and free men, tax collectors and taxpayers, educated and uneducated, male and female, young and old. He said, all of you. And I would add to that list today, married and single, working and retired, engineers and artists, introverts and extroverts, sophisticated and simple, public school families and homeschool families, contemporary Christian lovers and traditional hymn lovers, even Republicans and Democrats. Even, yeah, oh, don't go there, Paul. <laughs> I heard this gasp, oh, no. <laughs> even Cubs fans and White Sox fans, even a few Yankees fans sprinkled in there. All of you live in harmony with one another. Look around, look around you. How many people do you see that looks just like you, that acts or thinks just like you? I don't see anybody. There's great variety in a body of Christ, but with the variety is to be unity. Unity of mind and purpose and spirit. All of you live in harmony with one another. That's diversity with unity. Think about harmony in a musical sense. I really, this is why I really like the word harmony because you have these different notes that come together to form a single sound that's fuller and more beautiful than any one note by itself. And we had this Christmas a quartet 
that sang, a four-person quartet that sang a beautiful harmony. I want to go back and I want to listen to it again. I'm going to pull it up here. Hopefully this runs for us. Need volume, John. I didn't understand a word they said. It was Latin, I think, but I didn't have to. <laughs> the harmony there was beautiful. And I'm sure you noticed that not one of those people was identical to the other. I mean, look, you've got Katie wearing a dress. Kate didn't wear a dress. Uh, Kirk's got a beard. Andy doesn't have a beard. Kate and Katie don't have a beard. <laughs> They all sing with different voices. They were all singing different notes. And yet together there was this beautiful harmony. Now what if instead each one was singing their own song? And then they started arguing about what is the right song to sing. And before long this big dust up breaks out and they all go their own way and they never sing together again. Well, there you have a picture of some churches, sadly. That's not what God wants. God says, I want harmony in my church. He calls us, all of you who are different, to live together in unity and harmony. So, I'll bet that we're probably all okay with this command to have unity of mind if... Everybody else's mind is the same as ours. Everybody needs unity of mind. I just got to tell these people what they should be thinking and doing, and then we'll all be on the same page. Well, that's not going to work. Because well, we all think that our way is the right way, don't we? I mean, take any subject. Take driving. When you're driving down the tollway, don't you have your speed that you go? You do, don't you? Some of you, it might be 65 miles an hour. Some might go, no, 68 is the right speed. Some 75, some 78. Do we have any 85ers in here? <laughs> and, and each one of you probably thinks your speed is the right speed. And I'll bet that anybody going slower than your speed, you consider them a slow poke. And anybody going faster is an idiot, right? <laughs> Look at that idiot. <laughs> 93 miles an hour, 85 is the right speed. You know, we're all like that. We think we've got it right and everybody else in the band is out of step. So how are we ever gonna have unity in mind? Kind of reminds me of a little boy who was driving with his mother. And he, the little boy asked, mommy, why do the idiots only come out when dad is driving? <laughs> yeah, because dad kind of, Shoots off. Well, we do tend to think that we're right and everybody else is wrong. So how are we going to have unity of mind? Whose mind are we going to go with here? It has to be the mind of Christ. It has to be. 
And listen to Philippians 2.5 in the New King James Version. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. You need to have the mind of Christ. You see, the more we become like Christ in our thinking, the more we become like-minded. Now, does that mean we all must think the same thing? No, it doesn't. We won't. But we do all have to have the same attitude. We have to think the same way. We have to act in the same manner. And when we fail to do that, we need to ask forgiveness in the same way. So that we pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. And we need to all be playing from the same rule book. That's what it means to have unity of mind. Not that we're all identical, but that we're unified together. And so, the word of God is the key to developing the mind of Christ, to having the same mind. So what else does it say about this unity? Well, it says, verse eight, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now there's five instructions there. And they're all under the heading of living in harmony. This is the key point. All of you live in harmony. How are we going to do that? Number one, he says, be sympathetic. Sympathetic literally means fellow feelings. I like that. Fellow feelings. Do you have fellow feelings? Do you share in the feelings of other people? When someone else in the church is hurting, do you allow yourself to enter into that place and feel that pain? When somebody loses their job, do you feel a sense of loss? Or do you isolate yourself and not allow yourself to go there? See, to be sympathetic means to have fellow feelings, to enter into that place where the other person is. Now, we usually relate sympathy to like a bad situation, but it relates to happy ones too. When someone is blessed, are you happy with them? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? If instead we're callous, if we're too busy, if we just don't care how someone else feels, then we're going to trample over, the feel, over their feelings and it's going to create distance between us. In the parenting class that I mentioned, there's a principle there that I really like that's taught. I wish I would have learned this as an even younger father, but I learned it about 25 years ago and it was really helpful to me. And the principle is this, it's learning to measure your response against the excitement on your child's face. And it's illustrated in this story. It goes like this, one day 12-year-old Barry came home from school with great news. The teacher had selected him to be first chair trombone in the seventh grade band class. That evening when his dad came home from work, Barry ran into the kitchen and shouted, guess what dad, I made first chair. Overcome with enthusiasm, he let his imagination run wild and he cried, I'm going to be a musician when I grow up. Now, the feelings this announcement evoked in his father ranged from shock to sincere concern regarding the child's future. Not if you want to make any money or not, he said sharply. Barry's face fell. He hung his head and turned away. And as his father watched him retreat from the living room, he realized he had made a grave error. 
his son had tried to share with him something that was of great importance to him. And in his rush to protect his child, dad had stolen the very joy from his son's heart. In that moment, Barry did not need an analytical assessment about his career aspirations. He needed his father to share in his accomplishment. He wanted dad to enter in to his sense of excitement. To measure your response against the excitement on your child's face. See, without sympathy, we will easily trample on the feelings of others. See, this dad didn't measure his response against the excitement on his child's face. He didn't have fellow feelings. He wasn't sympathetic. And an opportunity to build a closer bond with his son was lost and replaced with feelings of hurt and distance. In a similar way, we need to be sympathetic with each other in the church. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to mourn with those who mourn. And it's not pretending It's allowing ourselves to have those fellow feelings. It's allowing ourselves to care about that person so much that we can't help it. We feel the way they do. That's sympathy. We need to be sympathetic. That's the first instruction, verse 8. The second is to love as brothers. It's not referring to biological brothers here. It's referring to spiritual brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Proverbs speaks of a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's a spiritual friend who's closer than a physical, biological brother. This is the type of relationship it's referring to. We asked recently during one of our men's Bible studies, the question was asked, how many of you have a 2 a.m. friend? And that's somebody that you could call at 2 a.m. in the morning for any reason, and they would be there to help you. They would come pick you up if need be. A 2 a.m. friend, and most of the guys there said, I don't have a 2 a.m. friend. How many of you have 2 a.m. friends? And to how many people are you a 2 a.m. friend? That you'd be willing, I don't care what time it is, you call me, I'm there for you. That's a picture of brotherly love. It's a willingness to put the needs of others before our own. And when we gather as a church or when we're around our brothers and sisters, it's so easy to be focused on ourselves and what we need, what we're looking to get out of Sunday. But see, Christian love is self-sacrificing. John, First uh, John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's brotherly love defined in scripture. You remember the words of President John F. Kennedy? He said, ask not what you can do for your country. Or no, that's not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You know, we should probably adopt that. Ask not what your brothers and sisters can do for you. Ask what you can do for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's looking to love them in a sacrificial, selfless way. That's what we need. In other words, we need to think less about ourselves and more about others, less about our needs and more about the needs of others. Consider this, how often do you do something self-sacrificing for somebody in this church body? When is the last time? How often do you do that? 
you might say, well, I grace them with my presence every Sunday. <laughs> they get to look at my beautiful face. Well, thank you <laughs> for that. But seriously, how often do you sacrifice something, go out of your way, inconvenience yourself to bless them? That's what it's talking about. If we're not doing that regularly, regularly, then we're not gonna have the love and harmony that should be the hallmark of our church and of our faith. So brotherly love. Third, he says, be compassionate. If you break down the word compassion, it means co-passion, which means, co means with, and passion means suffering. Co-suffering, suffering with somebody. It's kind of similar to sympathy in that you feel the way the other person feels. You enter into their pain, but it doesn't stop there. It's not only feeling someone's pain, but it's being motivated to do something about it. To do something about it. Jesus was full of compassion, scripture says. He saw the, the sick, and he had compassion on them, and he healed them. When he saw the people were hungry, he had compassion on them, and he fed them. When he saw that the people were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them, and he laid down his life to become their good shepherd. Now, we can't heal the sick necessarily, but God calls us to be compassionate with one another, to enter into that pain sympathetically and to do something about it. My heart was touched by a few pictures I saw this week coming out of the airport at Kabul, Afghanistan. Now, I, I, I'm terrified by what's going on there, but these pictures in the midst of that pain and suffering, there are some beautiful images of compassion for those who are hurting. Like here, a soldier giving water to this thirsty little boy. Or the same thing with this dear little girl. It both breaks my heart and warms it at the same time. I just want to pick that little girl up and hold her. And here the soldier is, is giving water to her. Or here, a soldier's given up his coat so that a child would have something to sleep on. Imagine the testimony that this must be to those little children when they see these acts of compassion in contrast to the brutality of the Taliban. That's going to stay with them for a lifetime. And we're supposed to be one nation under God. This is what that should look like. I'm thankful for these men and women who are sacrificing and beyond that are showing compassion to the people of Afghanistan. You and I are to have the mind of Christ and be compassionate toward all people, but especially those within the body of Christ. It should stand in contrast to the to the ungodly world around us. People should look at us and go, look at the compassion they have for one another. Fourthly, be humble. It means to rid ourselves of pride and be lowly in mind, not arrogant or boastful. William Barclay said, pride is the ground in which all other sins grow and the parent from which all other sins come. It's well put. Pride is essentially self-worship. It's a preoccupation with ourselves, with our needs, with our stuff. 
with our importance, with our achievements, with our reputation. And pride has little interest in the welfare of others. It makes it very difficult to be sympathetic or loving or compassionate. So maintaining harmony requires God's people to be humble. And now as we move to verse nine, it gets even harder. The fifth instruction is this, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now remember that the context for these instructions is fellow believers within the church. And it's in this context that Peter writes, do not repay evil with evil or insult from insult. So what do you infer from that right away? There will be evil and insult within the church. <gasps> You're probably not surprised by that. There will be evil and insult directed toward you from within the church. It's really not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's simply a matter of when. You should pretty much expect that you will be the recipient of some form of evil, intentional or not, or insult. We should expect that. And so we're given the proper way to respond. Look at what verse nine said. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Repay, that's a response. It's something we do in return. Little girl Nancy was in her garden filling in a hole with dirt and her neighbor was curious what was going on and he looked over the wall and he said, what are you doing little Nancy? And without looking up and with tears in her eyes, she said, I'm burying my goldfish that died. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. And out of concern, he said, but that's an awful big hole you've got there. And as she patted the last part of the dirt on it, she said, that's because he's inside your stupid cat. <laughs> Retaliation, get even, right? Repay. I'm gonna take, take that cat down with <laughs> my fish. To get payback is our natural response, isn't it? We feel that in our flesh. I'm not saying it's a wholesome response. It's a fleshly response because of our brokenness. There's actually a website called thepayback.com. And look at what it says. Thepayback.com is your home for all your revenge, revenge needs. Have you always wanted to tell somebody something but didn't know how to do it? Well, this is the perfect site for you. You know the saying, don't get mad, get even. And so, for a small fee, they will send anonymous hurtful texts, offensive greeting cards, nuisance phone calls, ruthless public lice, dead flowers, even a dead and rotten and stinking fish. <laughs> to the person on your behalf without naming you. You can get payback. Don't be writing the website down in your sermon notes. <laughs> I saw a couple of you, don't do that. But verse nine said, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. And God's rules have not changed. This is not like a New Testament only thing. All the way back in Leviticus 19, some 1,500 years before Peter wrote this letter, God said to the children of Israel, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 19, 18. 
Now you might wonder, well, then why did God also tell the Israelites in Exodus 21, but if there is a serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Maybe you weren't wondering that, but now you are. (laughs) It's my job to do the wondering for you. Why would God put that there? Is this another contradiction in scripture? Not at all. It's not at all. He says we're not to repay evil for evil, but what he's saying here, an eye for an eye, that's that's the known, that's a, a law known by the Latin phrase lex talionis. It means the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye. It comes right out of scripture. But what God's talking about there is instruction for civil authorities, not for individual victims. It was for civil justice, not personal vengeance. God knew that in our brokenness, we'd never apply personal vengeance fairly. Have you ever seen a victim on the jury? No, why not? Because he's gonna have a hard time ruling impartially. God knows that. So he gives the authority to civil leaders, not to individuals, to exact vengeance. Because we just we wouldn't be impartial. So he's established government authority and he supports civil justice, but not personal vengeance. And incidentally, Lex Talionis, this concept of an eye for an eye, wasn't given to promote vengeance or retaliation. The laws in the Middle East at the time allowed a victim to have uh, to return far more punishment than the original crime. God did this to limit vengeance not to spur it on, and it's only to be exercised by civil authorities. So it was intended to limit vengeance and, and ensure justice. So we're not to pay, repay evil for evil or insult with insult, and that goes against our natural flesh because we want the payback, don't we? What if I said there's still a way that you can get your payback, even within the church and even with God's approval? Would you be interested? It's right here in our text. God tells you how right here. He says, you're not to repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but we are to repay. He says, we're to repay evil and insult with blessing. That's the payback. That's how we're supposed to respond. That's how we achieve harmony within the church. Harmony is not about there being no evil or no insult in the church. It's about responding to it the right way. That's what creates harmony within the church. Verse nine continues, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? To this you were called. Just look up a little bit to verse 21 of chapter two. It says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And it goes on to describe how unjust his suffering was. It says in verse 22 of chapter 2, he committed no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth. When they hurled insults, insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And we're called to follow in his footsteps, it says. 
Here's the thing. Christ not only suffered for you, he suffered because of you. He suffered because of you. It was your fault, and it was my fault. Your evil and your insults and mine, and they were placed on him. We must never lose sight of that and the fact that even though that was the case, the greatest injustice ever, he did not retaliate. What if after the resurrection, Christ rose to retaliation? I'll be back. And he comes back, and he comes after you. He says, you, it was your fault, it was your sin that put me through that, and I'm back to settle the score. From resurrection to retaliation, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But the fact is, he does come after you. He does. But he didn't come after you to retaliate. He came after you to repay evil with blessing. That's our model. He came after you. He pursued you to bestow on you blessing in return for evil. We see this in verse 9 again. Because to this you also were called. You were called to repay evil and insult with blessing because Christ did that for you. Now I realize that's a tall order. It's one thing to go from somebody doing evil to you to not responding in evil. That's going from a negative thing to a neutral thing. But that's not what you're told to do. You're told to go from a neutral thing to a positive thing. You're told to repay evil with blessing. That's from negative to positive. Scripture says we're to overcome evil with good. That's how we overcome it, not by getting even. We overcome evil with good. Isn't that what God's done for us? When you confess your sin and you place your faith in Christ, he didn't just say, okay, good, now you won't go to hell. No, he went way beyond that. He says that I'm giving you an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade, kept in heaven for you. That was 1 Peter 1, 4. He went way beyond just neutral. He went positive. The lex talionis, an eye for an eye, that's justice. Getting what you deserve. But not returning evil for evil, that's mercy. That's mercy. That's not getting what you deserve. But God calls us to repay evil with blessing. That's grace. That's getting what you didn't deserve. Unmerited favor. That's a gift. That's grace. Does that make sense? He did that for us, and he calls us to walk in his footsteps and do the same thing for others. Maybe you've learned not to retaliate or hold a grudge against people, and that's good. But are you returning blessing for evil? Have you taken that step from negative to positive or only to neutral? You must learn to repay evil with blessing. This is the true language of love. This is what brings harmony to a church. This is what we're called to do. If I were to say to you that anyone who has received evil or insult from another person in the church, but they didn't yet 
return blessing to just get up and leave right now. Don't finish the sermon. Just get up and leave and go start working on that, returning blessing. If I said that, I don't think there'd be anybody left, right? Because I'd have to leave too. (laughs) There's many times if we search our soul that we failed to do that. Maybe we didn't retaliate, but did we return blessing for evil? Did we go from negative to positive? Well, that's the payback that God calls us to make. We need to finish the payback. I think every one of us has work to do just within the body in this area. We need to repay those people with blessing. That's the finale. That's the pinnacle. And it came first. I'm going to look real quickly at the forethought. And it'll go fast because most of this is a recap. But we'll go through this and, and look at some of the points. This is a recap from the Old Testament. Starting with verses 10 and 11, it says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must, re- he must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. This is a quote from Psalm 34 in the Old Testament. And you can tell it's a poetic section in Scripture. Most of your Bibles probably have it indented, meaning that's poetry. That's poetic language. Rhyming thoughts is what it normally was. And so Peter's going all the way back to the Old Testament, and he's showing us that this is what God has been saying all along. Only now you have a fuller understanding of it, and now this side of the resurrection, you also have the example of Christ, and you also have been set free from your bondage to sin if you're in Christ, and you also have his spirit, and you're empowered to be able to do this finally. Because he's taken away your heart of stone and he's given you a heart of flesh. So Peter's going back and saying it was this way from the beginning. We didn't see it much in the Old Testament. Occasionally, Joseph was a good example. His brothers sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him. They sold him into slavery. And then years later, they come begging for food. And did he retaliate? No. He didn't merely forgive them. He relocated him into the best part of the land so that he could provide blessing for them. It was a beautiful picture of grace. Well, let's just look at a couple details of this, this quote from Psalm 34. It begins with the word for, and, and it's in verse 10, and it's in verse 12. And, and that's saying, this is your motivation. Do it because of this. This is the incentive for whoever would love life and see good days. Don't you want to love life and see good days? Don't you want that abundant life that Jesus talked about? I do. But here, that blessing is tied to our behavior. When you bless others, God blesses you. Now, he blessed us even when we were his enemies, but now that we're his children, he calls to act in this way. With obedience comes blessing. And it says the same thing at the end. It said the same thing at the end of verse 9. When you repay evil with blessing, you will inherit a blessing. That's a promise from God. It'll come back to you in spades. In verse 11, he must turn from evil and do good. There it is. Not just refrain from evil. He must go from negative to positive. Must do good. Must bless in response. And you see it again in relation to peace in the second half of verse 11. You must seek peace and pursue it. Now, it might seem like enough to just avoid conflict. I'll just be a peaceful person. 
when that person attacks me, I won't retaliate. I'll just, you know, avoid conflict. But he said, no, no, you go way beyond that. You pursue peace. It's not passive, it's active. You have to go after it. When we were God's enemies, he pursued us, didn't he? He pursued us. The cross was the ultimate peace treaty signed in blood. He pursued us, and we're called to do the same thing with others. Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bonds of peace. That's written to brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the worst forms of unrest is infighting within the church. It's when Christians take their guns and turn them inward. I like to call it fragging the troops. It's a military term where somebody takes a hand grenade and launches it into the mess hall of his own troops. It's horrible. And we see it all too often, and the result is broken relationships and even broken churches. We each need to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, actively pursuing peace. And then finally in verse 12, and when I say finally, I mean it. I'm not halfway through. <laughs> it's the end. And finally, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is, again, the motivation, the incentive. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. When scripture talks about eyes and ears, God's spirit didn't physically have eyes and ears. It's an anthropomorphism. It's, it's assigning human characteristics to God so we can relate to it. When it talks about eyes and ears, it talks about the providential protection of God. He's looking after us. He's listening for our needs. He's hearing our prayers and he's protecting us and he's blessing us. His eyes are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's not only in the present time. It is in the present time, but it's also at the end of time. There is a final judgment. And Jesus, the Lord says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. For those who receive his part, who refuse his pardon his peace treaty on the cross, there does have to be justice. He's a just God. And there will be a repayment for the evil that was done. So, wrapping all this up, the real language of love is more than just words of affirmation or quality time or receiving gifts or acts of service and physical touch. They're all good things. But, there's more than that. There's more than that. The kind of love that brings harmony to a church, the real language of love is what we're seeing here. It's what lets all men know that we are Christ's disciples. It includes sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, co-passion, suffering with, humility, not repaying evil for evil, but repaying with blessing. And to these we were called, and it says that we might inherit a blessing with all, all. Think about all that God has done for us is captured in this letter to these poor persecuted Christians with all that God has done for us. We're still called to live in harmony with one another. 
Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm glad that you're not just a a just God, a God of justice, but a God of mercy and grace. Because if you were only a God of justice, we'd we'd be in such trouble. And I'm glad that you're not only all powerful, but you're all good, you're holy, you're righteous, and and you don't treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, you love us. You loved us even when we were your enemies, and you willingly endured injustice for us. You took the penalty that we deserve, and you offered us forgiveness and eternal life, an act of grace. Lord, Help us to be like you, every single one of us. Help us to find such complete satisfaction in being your child that we don't feel the need to return evil for evil, but we can overcome evil with good. Help us to truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ, not with words, but with actions and in truth. God, help us at Riverside to live in harmony with one another. We want this to be our testimony and we want it for your kingdom and your glory. And so we pray in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Let's worship him. Please stand.